Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Easter Sunday in 1975 was like any other in Hamilton, Ohio. Children hunted for eggs, mothers made last-minute preparations for family dinners, and entire families were dressed in new clothes to attend morning church services. For the Rupert family, the day started out happy. They worshipped together at an early service and then gathered at 635 Minor Avenue in Hamilton, a middle-class community about 30 miles from Cincinnati. But what happened that afternoon, March 30, 1975, went down in history as the deadliest shooting to ever occur in a private home in American history, and it left a grim and troubling haunting behind. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, weirdos! I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, legends, lore, the strange and bizarre, crime, conspiracy, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. Coming up in this episode, author Troy Taylor tells us about the horrors and hauntings of a murderous nightmare taking place on the holiest day of the year. Two young boys find a bloody shirt on a stone on the side of the road, and it leads to details of one of the most brutal murders in the history of Massachusetts. Why would a mother tell her daughter to never wander into their own backyard? The true story of an actor who lost his fortune, his life, and his death. It probably comes as no surprise that nursing homes can be haunted. A certified nurse assistant tells us his own personal experiences of it, plus numerous other paranormal true stories. I'll also share a creepypasta that was specifically requested for me to narrate by one of you, my weirdo family. It's called No End House. If you're new here, welcome to the show. And while you're listening, be sure to check out WeirdDarkness.com for merchandise, my newsletter, to enter contests, to connect with me on social media. Plus, you can visit the Hope in the Darkness page if you're struggling with depression or dark thoughts. You can find all of that and more at WeirdDarkness.com. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the Weird Darkness. James Urban Rupert was born on March 29, 1934. His early life was sad and abusive. His mother, Charity, often called him a mistake because she had wanted a daughter. His father, Leonard, was a violent man with a quick temper and little time or affection for his two sons. He died in 1947, 
when James was 12 and his brother Leonard Jr. was 14. He wasn't missed. Leonard Jr. became the head of the family and, according to James, picked on him incessantly. James did poorly in school, had few friends, and was always smaller than his brother. As an adult, he was only 5 foot 6 inches and weighed 135 pounds. At 16, James was so unhappy at home that he attempted suicide by hanging himself with a sheet. He failed and resigned himself to an unremarkable life. As he got older, his resentment for his brother grew. James flunked out of college after two years while Leonard earned a degree in electrical engineering and excelled in sports. To make matters worse, Leonard married one of the few girlfriends that James had ever had, with whom he had eight children. Leonard had a great job with General Electric, where James, at age 41, was unemployed and living with his mother. On top of it all, James owed money to his wife and brother, from whom he had borrowed large sums after losing what little he had in the stock market crash of 1973 and 1974. Charity was frustrated with his inability to keep a job and his constant drinking, and she threatened to evict him. The threat seems to have been what finally sent James over the edge. On March 29th, James' birthday, witnesses later reported seeing him shooting at cans with a 357 Magnum along the banks of the Great Miami River in Hamilton. He went out later that night, and at the 19th Hole Cocktail Lounge, he talked with employee Wanda Bishop. She later recalled that James seemed deeply depressed and talked about his mother's demands on him and her threatened eviction. He said that he needed to solve the problem. He left the bar at 11 p.m. that night and later returned. When asked if he had solved his problem, he replied, no, not yet. He stayed until the bar closed at 2.30 a.m. On Easter Sunday, Leonard and his wife Alma brought their eight children, ranging in age from 4 to 17, to see their grandmother at the house on Minor Avenue. James stayed upstairs, sleeping off his night of drinking while the children enjoyed an Easter egg hunt in the front yard. Afterwards, they came inside, and while Charity, Alma, and Leonard finished lunch preparations, the children played in the living room. Around 4 p.m., James woke up, loaded his 357 Magnum, two 22 caliber handguns, and a rifle, and went downstairs. He entered the kitchen, where he shot and killed Leonard, Alma, and Charity. His nephew David and his nieces, Teresa and Carol, were also in the kitchen. He killed them, too. James then rushed into the living room, where he killed his niece, Anne, and his four remaining nephews, Leonard III, Michael, Thomas, and John. He killed each of his victims by first taking a disabling shot and then finishing off with a shot to the head or heart. The massacre took less than five minutes to complete. James sat in the house for three hours before he called the police. When they arrived, he was waiting for them just inside the front door. The police described the scene as a slaughterhouse. There was so much blood splashed about that it was dripping through the floorboards into the basement. To this day, stains can still be seen on the wood. The murders shocked the small community and made headlines across the country. Those who knew James never believed that he was capable of such violence. 
he was a quiet, unassuming man and the perfect neighbor. James was arrested and charged with 11 counts of aggravated homicide. He refused to answer any questions and was very uncooperative. He made it clear that he planned to offer an insanity defense. Prosecutors believed that he planned to plead insanity and then, after being cured, would be released to inherit a $300,000 inheritance. The original trial was held in Hamilton. A three-judge panel found James guilty of 11 counts of murder and sentenced him to life in prison. A mistrial was declared and a second trial was held in Finlay, Ohio, about 125 miles north, since it was decided that James could not get a fair trial in his hometown. The second trial began in June 1975, and prosecutors offered new evidence about James' target shooting and statements about solving his problem. In July, he received a new sentence of 11 consecutive life sentences in prison. James appealed, and a new trial was granted in 1982. Defense attorney Hugh D. Holbrook convinced his client was insane personally funded the hiring of expert psychiatrists from all over the country. On July 23rd, another three-judge panel found James guilty of two counts of first-degree murder, his mother and his brother, but found him not guilty of the other nine counts by reason of insanity. He received one life sentence for each guilty count, to be served consecutively. Between 1972 and 1976, the death penalty had been suspended in the United States as a result of a pending U.S. Supreme Court decision, so James could not be sentenced to death for his crimes. James Rupert remains incarcerated today in the Allen Oakwood Correctional Institution in Lima, Ohio. He was granted his first parole board hearing in 1995, but his release was denied as was his latest attempt at parole in April 2015. There is a very good chance that he will die behind bars. In the wake of the murders, the 11 victims were buried in the Arlington Memorial Gardens in Cincinnati. A year later, the house on Minor Avenue was opened to the public and all of the contents were sold at auction. It was cleaned up, carpets were placed over the bloodstains that could not be removed, and it was rented out to a family that was new to the area and had no idea of the horrifying events that occurred there. They quickly moved out. After leaving the house, they claimed to hear voices and strange noises that they couldn't explain. Lights turned on and off, doors slammed, and thudding footsteps were often heard coming down the stairs. They were not the last to move in and quickly leave either, a number of other families moved in and out of the house, and none stayed for long. All of them reported sounds and voices that could not be explained. The house was abandoned for several years, but the last family that moved in reported nothing out of the ordinary. Whatever eerie haunting that had plagued the previous tenants was over at last. Perhaps the echo of the shocking events of 1975 which seemed to leave an indelible mark on the house, had finally faded away. And perhaps after more than 40 years, the spirits of the Rupert family can finally rest in peace.
I've worked as a CNA, Certified Nursing Assistant, for about two years now and can attest to the fact that some nursing homes are indeed haunted. Throughout my two years, my co-workers have always told me that our nursing home is haunted. I, of course, did not believe them. But that all changed when I heard and saw things for myself. Of course, most of the hauntings take place at night. There have been multiple afternoons and nights where I've found that a TV in a resident's room had turned on just by me either entering the room or passing it. The resident who previously occupied that room died a few days prior. Another haunting occurrence was when I was working third shift and I thought I heard crying coming from a resident's room, but when I checked it out, the resident was fast asleep. Another occurrence was when I saw what I assumed was one of my residents walking in the hallway, but when I got up to check on him, he disappeared into a room. However, when I looked in the room, the resident was sat asleep in bed, and there was no one else in the room. Again, another occurrence was a call light. Residents use this in their rooms to call the aides. that goes off all the time, but we have no idea where the call light is coming from it goes off pretty much all the time. Whether it's a wiring shortage or something paranormal, we don't know. We have dubbed this as the ghost light. Now, in order to shut off the call lights, we press the off button in the rooms or at the nurse's station. There have been a few dozen times that the ghost light comes on and we shut it off and say annoyingly that, okay, ghost, for the love of God, stop it, or I'm going to have to slap this ghost. Anyway, if I think some more, I could probably come up with more stories of nursing home hauntings, but for now, I can't. Suffice it to say, there really are hauntings going on at nursing homes. The next story to relate at the nursing home, it's called Full Moon Theory. If you are a CNA or a nurse, you probably have heard of it. A few nights leading up to and on the night of the full moon, the residents act up more than usual residents get more combative and crazy. Medication doesn't seem to help that much on these types of days and nights. I've tried telling people who aren't AIDS that this theory is true. They don't believe me. Until you actually work in a nursing home on the days of the full moon, you'd think we were crazy. Maybe we are. After all, it's only a theory. We can't prove anything. However, I've been working as an aide long enough that I seriously think it to be true. Two young boys walking down a road in Lexington, Massachusetts on January 4, 1887, found a bloody shirt atop a stone wall by the side of the road. They stopped to look around and saw a bundle of clothes lying on the crust of snow on the other side of the wall. The bundle consisted of an entire suit of men's clothing, from undergarments to overcoat, all saturated with blood. The boys gathered the clothes and hurried back to town. The Lexington police examined the clothing and believed that it was evidence that a murder had been committed within the previous 48 hours. Their speculation was confirmed the following morning 
when L. I. Brooks, a farmer from Lincoln, Massachusetts, saw what he thought was a large snowball in a patch of bloody snow. Looking closer, he saw that it was actually a severed human head, with two or three deep gashes in the left side. About four feet to the right of the head, he found a severed arm. He left the body parts where he found them, drove his sleigh as fast as possible into Lexington to inform the selectmen. A search party was sent out at once, and by the end of the day they had found the naked body of a man, half hidden by bushes in a gully about a mile from where the head was found. The head, left arm, and right leg of the body were missing. The search continued, but the missing leg was not found that day. As the police began making inquiries about missing persons in neighboring towns, Mr. L. B. Pillsbury, a news dealer who ran a boarding house in Somerville, reported that the victim was probably one of his boarders. Several residents of the house believed that the deceased man was George A. Codman, based on the detailed description of the clothing in the previous day's newspaper. In particular, a pair of work gloves that had been patched with bed ticking were almost certainly Codman's gloves, which had been mended by his girlfriend, Jenny Fisher. The identification was confirmed by Codman's brother, who viewed the remains. 22-year-old George Codman had been a milkman who made regular deliveries in Boston and Cambridge. As a rule, he would leave the house around 2 a.m., make his rounds, and return for lunch at around 1 in the afternoon. Codman had not been seen since 2 o'clock Tuesday morning. Mrs. Osgood, who rented a stable to Codman, described him as a hard-working, painstaking young man who always paid his bills on time, and when he wasn't out on his route, he was in the stable cleaning up. In November, Codman told Mrs. Osgood that he was working too hard. He wanted to go back to New Hampshire for Thanksgiving to visit his father and grandmother, but did not have the time. She suggested that he hire a boy to take care of the stables. Soon after this, Codman hired 17-year-old James E. Nolan. Around 2 o'clock on the afternoon that Codman failed to show up for lunch, Nolan went to the boarding house and told Mrs. Pulsbury, Codman will not come home to dinner. He's going away and sent me to get his coat and box of change. She recognized Nolan as Codman's employee and let him into Codman's room. He left with the coat and the box. After he'd gone, Mrs. Pillsbury found that he had also emptied Codman's wallet and cast it aside. When James Nolan was questioned, he told police that he'd seen Codman at 11 on Tuesday morning, sitting in his own sleigh with a stranger. He told Nolan he was going away for an indefinite period of time and left Nolan in charge of the business. They questioned Nolan again after they learned that he'd gone to the boarding house and left with at least $295. They also had searched the stable and found poorly cleaned bloodstains on the floor, as well as an axe and a butcher's knife, both stained with blood. Now, Nolan said he had witnessed the murder, but it had been committed by two others, Tom Nevins and Mike Sweeney. Sweeney had been in the house of correction that day. Nevins also had an airtight alibi. When the police confronted Nolan again, he confessed. Well, I might as well die for it. I did it alone. Codman came in and stood with his back towards me. I reached for the knife, then cut his throat. Codman cried, don't, and followed me to the ice chest where he fell dead. Nolan cut the body up so that it would fit in the sleigh 
then dropped the clothes and body parts along the road, 15 miles from his home. He told the police where they could find the missing leg. Theft was the motive given for the murder. Nolan knew that Codman was expecting a large payment from one of his customers and expected to steal at least $600 from him. But there was reason to believe that the motive ran deeper than that. After killing Codman, Nolan mutilated his face, presumably to make him harder to identify. He did the same to Codman's genitals. There was no reason for this if theft was the motive. It was reported that when Nolan was first hired, Codman had him driving the milk route but found that he was taking too long. It turned out that the milk cart was seen for hours at a time parked outside the house of a dashing young widow who lived on Shawmut Avenue. Codman took back the route and relegated Nolan to the stable. It was said that Nolan became angry when he saw that Codman had parked the cart in front of the same house. When the case went to trial the following June, the prosecution stuck to theft as the motive. It was a simple, straightforward story, and Nolan had already confessed. They also wanted to avoid any evidence that might show Nolan to be mentally imbalanced since his defense was insanity. Neither side mentioned the genital mutilation in court. The defense claimed that Nolan had inherited insanity from both sides of his family. His father hanged himself in prison in Canada, and several of his mother's relatives were certifiably insane. James Nolan's immediate family believed he was insane. But the jury was not convinced. Nolan was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to hang. When James Nolan faced the gallows at the East Cambridge Jail the following January, he was stoic and remorseful, saying, When a thing of this kind is done, there is no undoing it. God knows in my heart and soul I am sorry. If I had known as much about the Bible then as I do now, this thing never would have happened. At 9.23 on January 20, 1888, the trap was sprung and Nolan's death was nearly instantaneous. If you or someone you know struggles with depression or dark thoughts, I'd like to recommend the Hope in the Darkness page at WeirdDarkness.com. There I've gathered resources to help fight depression with the Seven Cups app, connecting you with people who've also struggled with depression and are there to lift you up, even professional listeners there to listen at all hours of the day. If you're having dark thoughts of harming yourself or worse, there's the Suicide Prevention Lifeline that you can either call or chat online with anytime, 24-7. The folks at ifred.org are doing what they can with research and education on depression to give us the tools we need to fight against it in the days ahead. These resources are absolutely free and there when you need them on the Hope in the Darkness page at WeirdDarkness.com. This story is my first paranormal experience when I was young. I grew up in a very religious family in my mom's home province in the South. When my father died, my mom decided to leave Manila and stay with my grandmother in the province where she can teach in a local private school as a teacher. The first house that we rented was an old two-story house, and it's undergone several renovations and changes over the years. It was big enough for us and our two house helpers, 
It has three bedrooms, two baths, a kitchen, and a dining room, and a big backyard where our landlady actually raised pigs and other poultry animals. I studied in a Catholic private school run by priests and nuns, where stories about the supernatural are considered to be rubbish, apart from what's written in the Bible. But I could distinctly remember telling my mom that the place looks haunted because of the bleak and stillness of the house. I remember my mom chuckled and gave my grandmother a knowing look, not sure whether they share the same thoughts or they think I was just being silly. On our first night in that house, my mother gave me a St. Benedict medallion and told me to wear it all the time and to never wander around the backyard. My mother did not explain why, and I just thought that maybe it was because of the animals. For those who are non-Catholics, St. Benedict is our patron saint for protection against evil. Despite all the seeming strangeness, and while adjusting to provincial life, our first few days in the house was nothing but pleasant, and our excitement to finally settle down had overshadowed the creepiness of the house. As days turned to months, the house seemed to brighten up. I guess it just needed a happy family to lighten up the atmosphere. I kept my word and never set foot in our backyard. I was able to see the landscape of the area, though, through our window in the kitchen, and the area was huge like a farm with so many trees. There were ducks and chickens roaming around. It was on our second year when it all started. My mom and I usually share the same bed. She uses a chamber pot in our bedroom to pee. One night, when she woke up at around 2 a.m. to answer nature's call, she discovered that the urine inside the pot spilled all over the floor. She was upset as she had to clean up the floor and get rid of the stinking smell. As a policy, we never lock our bedroom doors at night in case of emergency, so she asked the housemaids and my grandmother the following morning about it. They all said that it was not them and that maybe the pot had a leak. My mom checked the pot and said there was no leak at all. The following night, the same thing happened, and this time her slippers were drenched in urine. She woke me up and hurriedly took me outside the bedroom and woke everyone in the house. I did not know what was going on until I realized that she was barefoot and then I saw the water on the floor. The pot was still in an upright position and her slippers soaked in urine and water. She left me in the living room with our two house helpers who were both as confused as I was whilst she talked to my grandmother in the dining room. They seemed to be trying to keep their voices down, but I could tell that my mom was visibly shaken as she was talking really fast, and my grandmother covered her mouth from time to time in shock. The following morning, my grandmother went to our parish church, and when she came back, she brought home a bottle of holy water. While we were on our way home from school, my mom asked me to avoid being alone in the bedroom. I felt unsettled, and the thought that we were still going to spend another night in that room scared me. That night, my mom led a rosary before we slept and hanged a St. Benedict medallion in the mosquito net. She blessed the room with holy water as if she was exercising the room, saying, Be gone in the name of Jesus! The whole thing creeped me out as it only confirmed my suspicions that there was something sinister in the bedroom, and I was not so sure it was a good idea to sleep there again. I remember grasping my medallion, 
hoping and praying that my mom would drive away the evil thing in our house. When my mom finally turned off the lights, I lay down in bed and faced the wall, afraid that I might wake up in the middle of the night and see something scary in the dark. However, I remember how brave it was of my mother to order that thing to leave our house a while ago, and so I decided to turn on my other side, facing my mother, as I wanted to be there to help her if anything happened. I was finally able to sleep, when a sudden scream woke me up, and I found my mother sitting in bed in the darkness of our room. I was so scared, and I didn't know what to do. I was frozen in fear as my mother pulled me closer. I was afraid to leave the bed as I didn't know what awaited me in the dark. It was dreadful. She was mumbling words like Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. All of a sudden, the lights in our room turned on and my grandmother rushed inside. All of my stuffed toys were on the floor. My mom's makeups and lotion were scattered on her vanity table. It was as if somebody had a fit and decided to throw all our stuff around. My grandmother rushed us outside the room, and I could hear my mom telling her that when she woke up, she saw a pair of huge red eyes malevolently staring at her. I was so scared, and I started to cry in the living room. My grandmother told me that I needed to be brave and that the evil thing in our house would feed on our fears. After my mother had finally calmed down, she decided that we wouldn't be sleeping in that room and that we'll retire for the night in the living room. From that moment on, a sense of foreboding has engulfed the house. The following day, I overheard my mom having a discussion with our landlady about the things that had been happening in our house and that she was thinking of moving out. The landlady was surprised and asked my mom to think about it before rushing to a decision to leave. She sounded very sorry about what had happened and said that she'd help us in any way she could. We spent our nights in the living room from that day on, and that was the very first time that I started to have nightmares that seared in my memories up to this time. There was one nightmare where I was trying to leave the house, but I could not get past the gate as there was a man with burned red skin that looked like a demon and he was banging the gates over and over again while viciously staring at me in our front door as if he was taunting me. Several days later, one of our house helpers told me that the landlady hired a folk healer to check the house. I wanted to see what the folk healer was going to do, but my mom sent me over to my aunt's house with one of our house helpers to look after me. I felt bad about it as I also wanted to know what was scaring us. It bothered me that it only happened at night and always in that bedroom. Personally, I thought it would have been better if they had asked for a priest to bless the entire house. I asked our house helper whether she had any unnatural experiences in our house during the weekdays when my mom was at work and I was at school. She told me that one afternoon she was alone in the kitchen when she heard a groaning sound of an old woman in the bathroom. I told her it could have been grandma, but she said that she was in the convenience store at that time with the other house helper. There were also times when they experienced sudden goosebumps while doing the laundry in the backyard and the pigs and chickens would suddenly make noises as if something unseen was causing a disturbance. She said she already told Grandma about it, and if things got worse, she might leave and look for another family that might want to employ her. She must have been really frightened. When I got home that night, I asked my mom what the folk healer did, 
and she told me there was something in the backyard that's causing all the trouble. According to my mom, the folk healer said our landlady chopped off a very old mango tree in the backyard without first asking permission from its dwellers whether it was okay for her to cut it off. I asked her what exactly is dwelling in the tree, and my mother said there were several entities there, one of which is an Encanto, an environmental spirit, and a Capri, or tree giant. It was a shock, as it was my first time to hear about this stuff, and the only thing I know about the supernatural are spirits and demons which I learned from our Christian living subject in school. I asked my grandmother to describe how these creatures look, but she refused to talk about them as it might encourage them further to terrorize us. My mother, however, told me what our landlady should have done was ask permission first by thrusting a dagger in the tree and leaving it there overnight. If she found the dragger in the ground the following day, it would mean the entity does not want her to cut off the tree. If the dagger remained plunged in the tree, that meant it would be okay for her to cut it off. I was quite disturbed and found the story incredible. I couldn't help but ask her what if someone took the dagger off the tree without the landlady knowing about it, or what if she didn't thrust the dagger hard enough and it just fell? It's just not a foolproof way to know what the entity is really wanted. I had a lot of questions in my mind that time as I tried to look for a plausible way to understand. To be honest, I was a bit skeptical about the whole Encanto story. We were not taught in our Christian living subject in school that there are such creatures. However, I was also open-minded to the idea that perhaps evil has many faces and that it lays dormant until unleashed like what our landlady did. I remember my mom telling me not to go to the backyard a year or so back, so I asked her whether she knew all this time that there was something unnatural living in the backyard. She said she was not sure, but the place had given her bad vibes, and, just to be safe, she did not want me to wander around the backyard. Several days later, we still were sleeping in the living room, and I still had nightmares. I heard the landlady talking to my mom, saying that she was going to apologize to the entities dwelling in the tree. But despite of this, my mom finally decided to move out and look for a new house to rent. Since that day, I never heard any news or story about that house until several years after, when my grandmother mentioned it once when I accompanied her to visit Grandpa's grave in the cemetery. She said it seemed that the landlady's apology was not accepted at all. On the night we left, the landlady lit an incense in front of the tree as instructed by the folk healer and asked for forgiveness for what she did. While she was doing this, the incense she was holding fell as if somebody forcibly hit her hand and then she was violently shoved to the ground. I didn't know what to say after I heard that. I was just thankful that we got out of there before things really got out of hand. Just up the street from the burial place of Alexander Hamilton, you'll find St. Paul's Chapel, the oldest standing church in New York City. George Washington prayed here the day of his inauguration, and the church served as a port in the storm during the tragic events 
of September 11, 2001. Despite the enormous devastation that day, St. Paul's emerged without so much as a broken window. But St. Paul's churchyard is also home to the ghost of one of George Frederick Cook, an English actor who got in over his head living the high life in New York in 1810, so much so that he allegedly, well, lost it. His head. After a successful career in London as a stage actor, marred only by his alcoholism, Cook was persuaded to take an American tour in 1810. He made his American debut as Shakespeare's Richard III to glowing reviews in the New York press. He then made his way around the Northeast, undertaking performances in Boston, Baltimore, Philadelphia, and Providence. But the outbreak of the War of 1812 stranded Cook in New York, and on September 26, 1812, he died from complications of cirrhosis. Cook's life had been turbulent, and he was deeply in debt. His celebrity made his corpse somewhat of a morbid curiosity. Legend says that Cook's toe or finger was stolen by a fellow actor who sent it back to his wife in London. The wife, understandably disgusted, threw the extremity away. Apparently, when Cook's body was moved from the stranger's vault to a public grave at St. Paul's, his head was said to be missing. A likely scenario is that Cook may have donated his head to science as a means of paying off his creditors. Cook was reburied under a new memorial financed by his protege, Edmund Keane, in 1821. By then, his skull had reportedly been making the rounds as the Yorick skull prop in New York's production of Hamlet. Whether it was formally donated or stolen is unclear. Finally, in 1938, the skull was donated to the Thomas Jefferson Medical School Library in Philadelphia. For centuries, theater lore has told the story of real human skulls being used to portray the skull of Yorick in productions of Hamlet, mostly those of famous actors or musicians who bequeathed their severed heads and skulls to remain in the life of the theater long after their death. Most recently, the pianist Andrei Tchaikovsky donated his skull to the Royal Shakespeare Company upon his death in 1982, citing that it was his wish that it be used as the Yorick prop. For many years, no actor felt comfortable using the skull, until 2008, when David Tennant used it in a series of Hamlet performances at Stratford-upon-Avon. The stunt received much publicity. Though the production claimed they removed it to avoid distracting the audience, Tchaikovsky's skull went on to perform in Hamlet Productions in London's West End and in a televised performance on the BBC. Since around the time of the monument's installment in 1821, visitors have reported the ghastly sight of a headless man roaming the churchyard, looking for something, presumably his head. Alas, poor George Frederick Cook, the ruined actor whose private demons and love for the drink led to his demise, Perhaps he could rest if he knew his missing skull had gone on acting long after his own death to hopefully good reviews. Hey Weirdos, have you signed up for the Weird Darkness email newsletter? It'll keep you up to date on what's happening with the podcast, when our next Weirdo watch party will take place, you can see when the next sale in the Weird Darkness store is scheduled, and more. Sign up for the Weird Darkness email newsletter for free at WeirdDarkness.com. 
I'd like you to meet the newest member of our weirdo family. Meet Cyjack, a female Arctic wolf. While visiting the Wild Animal Sanctuary in Keensburg, Colorado, Robin and I fell in love with the place and their mission to save the lives of animals from abuse and neglect. I immediately felt drawn to Cyjack upon seeing her and decided to adopt her in the name of Weird Darkness. And that means you had a part in that, weirdos. Cyjack was born in a safari park that couldn't care for her. But the Wild Animal Sanctuary steps in to save Cyjack and other wild animals from private owners and less-than-ideal living conditions. Cyjack now has a lifelong home in a large acreage, natural habitat near other wolves. Wild Animal Sanctuary has saved numerous other wild animals from abuse and neglect – lions, grizzlies, tigers, panthers, and more. Visit WildAnimalSanctuary.org to learn more, donate to the sanctuary, and maybe adopt an animal of your own, like we have with Cyjack. That's WildAnimalSanctuary.org. I was just finishing up my freshman year of college, and a group of us were enjoying the end of school with a lunch at Denny's. We'd been there an hour or so, the bill had been brought to us, but we were still chatting and eating. I decided to treat my friends. It was a small bill, so while they were chatting, I got up to go to the bathroom and surreptitiously grabbed the bill on my way. The bathrooms are right across from the front desk where you pay your bill. As I was coming out of the bathroom, I noticed a couple who were just finishing up and were out the door before I made it to the desk. I didn't get a good look at them and I didn't think anything about it. Then things got weird. I handed my bill to the same server who had just checked out the couple ahead of me. He looked at me curiously and asked if there was anything wrong. No, I said, just paying my bill. He continued to look at me strangely and for a full minute looked from me back to the bill I'd handed him, before he said, I'm confused. For a minute, I thought the server was a complete idiot. He probably cashes people out a million times a day. I had no idea why, suddenly, this was so difficult for him. Finally, I said, can I just pay my bill? To which he replied, I thought you just did. I assured him I had not and was in the process of paying when my friend came up and grabbed me by the elbow, led me back to the table, and told me to sit down. She explained that after I'd gone to the bathroom, they had noticed that the bill was missing and guessed my secret plan. She headed for the front desk intending to stop me. When she saw me paying the bill, she made a move to grab me by the shoulders when she stopped dead in her tracks. Something about me seemed wrong. She said I looked the same, but then she noticed that I seemed to be with a strange man she didn't know, and it certainly wasn't anyone we came in with. She went back to the table and watched me leave, only to see me appear mere seconds later out of the bathroom. I would have thought it was a prank if the waiter's attitude hadn't backed up her story. His confusion became clear to me. He had just seen me pay my bill, only to return seconds later to pay it again. I've never heard of two witnesses to a doppelganger. One friend and one stranger seeing and recognize the incident makes it just doubly weird.
I'm a grocery store employee in Idaho. I work in the electronics department and I have a deep interest in the paranormal. A few weeks ago, I was on the floor just making sure everything was correctly shelved. I was walking around and I had noticed this man come around completely by himself. He was wearing regular clothes, nothing unusual about him really, so I continued on with what I was doing. He just kept walking around my department and kept looking around the store like he was lost or something. One thing I noticed that was weird about him was the way he walked. He didn't walk with a normal stride, but in a way it was almost like a slow motion type walk, yet not as dramatic and obvious as you would picture such a walk. It's hard to explain, but it was just a weird slow walk. After noticing that, I continued to work. I had bent down to pick up some trash on the floor, and when I stood back up, he was a good 10 feet away and he was staring straight at me. Completely motionless, we stood looking at each other. All of a sudden, his eyes turned completely black. No white parts or iris or anything, just completely black. But it only happened for a couple of seconds just long enough for me to realize he was different. I made a puzzled face and broke eye contact with him and continued working and he just went away. I don't know if he was a demon or what, but I do know it puzzled me and still does. After listening to your black-eyed kid accounts, I wonder if he was one of them. I have my own experience of these black-eyed kids. It happened a few years ago. I've never been able to really think of a rational reason for what happened. It just happened. I headed out to mow my lawn. In the front of the ditch of the road, I have bushes and flowers neatly set up. To my surprise, someone had gone by and stepped all over my roses. I was pretty upset. The next day, I saw two kids walking down my road. Keep in mind, my road has several houses, so we all know each other very well. These kids look to be around 14 or 15 years old. I've never seen these kids before in the neighborhood. I wanted to go outside and ask if they messed with my roses, but I figured they're just kids and I'd let it slide this time. The kids stopped walking and just stood on the road across from my house. That's a good hundred or so feet away. They just stood there. I was looking out the window and they were just standing right there. I went to my room to get my shoes and when I came out, they were gone. It was around 8 p.m. and it was starting to get dark out. My power went off and on a few times. That's never happened before. We usually have very stable electricity. Around 8.20, I heard deep knocking at my front door. I went over to the door, turned on my porch light, and looked through the little hole on my door, but it was just pitch black, even though the light was on. I didn't know why, but I was extremely terrified. I started to put my hand on the handle and asked, Who's there? Some kid answered, Sorry to bother you, but we're lost and need to borrow your phone. I have a spare cell phone you can borrow for a few minutes, I told them. 
Let me go get it, and I'll come outside with you. The kid just said, no, you let me in right now, and he started banging on my door. I'm not talking about just hitting it, but it was like something very big and wide was smashing against my door. I said, you quit that right now. I got a gun, and if you try anything, I'll shoot you. The kid kept screaming, let me in now. You're making a mistake. I grabbed my gun and held it off to the side of my leg. I put my hand on the lock and unlocked the door. This is where I made my mistake. I opened the door expecting either both kids or just one kid with a weapon or something. But these weren't little kids. Standing at my door were two people, and both looked young, but their eyes gave them away. They were pitch black. I felt terrified again. I felt like putting my shotgun down and letting them in. I'm not sure why I felt that way. As I had the door open for those three or four seconds, the taller kid started to walk forward to come in. I kicked my door shut as hard as I could, and I locked it. At this point, I heard them both crying and screaming in a strange, distorted, high-pitched way, followed by some banging on my door again. I went to check my back door just to make sure it was still locked. Thankfully, my back door was locked, and by the time I headed to my front door, they just stopped. I loaded my shotgun and opened the door expecting these things, but they were gone. I heard some footsteps and my neighbor was coming by. He heard some weird screams and came by to check on me. I stood there, probably looking like death with a shotgun in my hand. I let him in and told him the entire event. He told me to call the cops, but I was positive they would not believe me. I recently listened with interest to your story about the two black-eyed kids who tried to gain entry to a lady's house. I also had an experience with a black-eyed person. I took my family on vacation last year. We stayed at a motel near Lake County, California. It's a nice area with plenty of things for the kids to do. Everything had been going well and we had been having a lot of fun. On our fourth night, we were in our room watching TV when someone knocked on the door. We weren't expecting any visitors, so I elected to ignore it. The knocking continued, and whatever was on the other side of the door started growling. I shouted out and told them they had the wrong room and that we weren't expecting anyone. The knocking ceased. A few moments later, it started again, and a voice started shouting, Let me in! It was a female voice, but it was devoid of any emotion. Then we started to hear the same thing happening up and down the corridor. Multiple voices, all screaming, let me in! We were terrified at this point, wondering what was going on. I got up and looked out the window. Two people were walking into the building. Both looked normal until one noticed that I was standing at the window. I saw her eyes they were completely black. In every other sense, she looked normal, but I am sure both the girl who saw me and the man she was with were both black-eyed people. 
When the commotion finally died down, I ventured out of our room and went over to the receptionist block. The receptionist told me that she had received no complaints and had been on duty the whole time. She had no explanation for what I was telling her. I think she thought I was insane. I just wonder what would have happened if I had opened the door. Would I be here to tell this story? We won't be going to Lake County again, I can tell you that. I'll tell you something that happened to me while I was growing up. When I was five, we moved into one of those cookie-cutter neighborhoods with cheap houses and only a dozen or so different floor plans. It was the first house my parents ever bought, and they loved it. The floor plan was laid out with the bottom floor being very open. The kitchen and living room and dining room were all connected in a big oval. The upstairs had a narrow catwalk which was like a suspended hallway where the walls only went up to your waist. If you looked over, you could see down into the living room on one side or the foyer and front door on the other. The house had two and a half bathrooms and three bedrooms. Right next to the top of the stairs, as you got to the catwalk, was a spare room that Dad used for his man cave of sorts. My bedroom was at the opposite end of the catwalk at the far end from the stairs. My door didn't face the study door, though. If you walked in a straight line from the study across the catwalk, you'd walk into the upstairs bathroom. This bathroom shared a wall with my bedroom and was deemed the cat bathroom, as the cat's litter box was in there. There was always litter all over the floor because the cat would kick it out of the box. That bathroom's door was at a 90-degree angle to my bedroom door. Now, as I said, our house was made with cheap materials. The upstairs floors always creaked and moaned when someone walked around, even though the house was less than five years old. My parents' bedroom was directly under mine, which made it hard to stay up late playing with toys when I was supposed to be in bed. My parents could hear every move I made. My bedroom door was always kept closed because I was a messy kid and my parents didn't want the cat getting into my things. When I was about seven, I started noticing creaking down the catwalk at night. It would start at Dad's study, get to my bedroom, and stop. Sometimes, through the darkness, I would see the slightest movement under my door. I was terrified. I told my mom and she brushed it off, saying it must have been the cat walking back and forth to the litter box. I didn't think for a second the cat was heavy enough to make the floor creak like that. Even if he could, the creaking never reversed direction back down the hall, and I never heard scratching in the litter box, which our cat did all the time, as evidenced by the litter all over the floor. It was always starting in front of my dad's study and stopping in front of my room. I couldn't even hear footsteps or thumping of feet, just the creaking of the floor. The stairs, also creaky as hell, would never make a sound either. You would think if the cat would make the floors creak, he could make the stairs creak too on his way up or down. One night in particular, as I was laying awake, I heard it. 
Ever since Mom had mentioned the cat, I had started to doubt myself. But I knew it didn't sound like our cat walking across. I knew what I heard. I was going to face my fears and prove Mom wrong. I gathered up my courage and gave myself a pep talk. I ran across my room and flung open the door. I peered out into the semi-dark and saw nothing. No cat, no shadowy shapes, nothing. I checked the bathroom and there was no cat in there either. Several more nights over the next few weeks I would get up and check when I heard the creaking. Most of the time the cat would be downstairs either sleeping or wandering around quietly in the living room. Whenever I left my room, the sounds would stop for the rest of the night. I continued to tell my mom and she continued to brush it off, saying the house was settling or I was imagining it. She claimed she never heard the creaking on the catwalk and I noticed it would only happen after they had gone to bed. Sometimes, on nights I had a good full night's sleep, Mom would ask me the next morning if I was up playing or couldn't sleep. I would tell her I slept fine and asked why she had wondered. She would quickly say, oh, never mind, it must have been nothing, I just thought I heard your floor creaking. I was a sophomore at a university in California when this incident took place. I saw my roommate's doppelganger. I'm not positive, but I think this doppelganger crossed over from a parallel universe. I say that because she looked pretty sinister. She looked exactly like my friend, but she didn't have the sweet smile my friend has. She looked twisted, almost like a reverse mirror image of my friend. The smirk was definitely not anything my friend would have produced. At the time, I had never heard of a doppelganger, and I still wouldn't call myself an expert. All I know is that I saw something that looked eerily like my best friend. She wore the same clothes, but she had a limp, and later I realized that everything about her was reversed. Her buttons were on the opposite side of her dress she looked like a complete reverse mirror image. My friend and I were sitting in the TV room in the basement. It was the weekend. The campus was vacated, my friend decided to go to bed, and a few minutes later, the TV picture started to break up. I tried to fix it, but some movement of some kind caught my attention. I looked towards the stairs and saw my friend walking back down into the basement. I was surprised as she had been falling asleep in front of the TV. I asked her if she was okay, and she said nothing. When she reached the bottom of the stairs, I noticed the limp, and I noticed the reversed buttons, even though it took a few hours for that to register. The doppelganger said nothing, and the TV corrected itself, so I sat down with her and we started watching some old movie. About an hour later, my friend came downstairs and asked if she could speak to me. For a moment, I was looking at two versions of the same person. I went over to my friend and before I could point it out, the doppelganger had disappeared and my friend didn't see her face. 
It was the strangest incident I have ever come across. This took place in the late 1970s, and my friend would never believe my story. Years later, however, I met her with her family, and she had a limp. Apparently, a car crash had caused it. I still wonder if my friend was meant to see her doppelganger, not me. But the doppelganger made no attempt to turn and talk to my friend. She just sat there until she disappeared. The whole thing was a very weird occasion and still gives me the creeps today. If you like what you're hearing in Weird Darkness, please tell somebody about the podcast, someone you know who loves creepy, strange stuff like you do. Also, please leave a rating and review of the podcast in the podcast app you listen from. Doing so helps the show to get noticed. In fact, we've set it up now so that if you listen to the podcast in the Spreaker podcast player, you can comment on individual episodes and I'll be notified so I can see your comments and respond to them. That's something I can't do in other podcast apps. You can find the free Spreaker podcast player in your mobile app store. And thanks for helping to spread the weird darkness. The Ash Building, on the corner of Green Street and Washington Place, was a rather nondescript ten-story building. The owners, Max Blank and Isaac Harris, rented or subcontracted out the lower seven floors of the building to various other similar enterprises. They saved the eighth, ninth, and tenth floors for the Triangle Shirtwaist Company factory, which they operated to make ladies' blouses, then known as shirtwaists. Employees of the Triangle Shirtwaist Company were not allowed to leave the building by the main doors. At the end of the workday, they were required to go to the rear exit door, which was kept locked during the hours of operation for fear of theft. Here, the employees were routinely searched before leaving, lest they try to steal something. Since the young ladies who worked in the sweatshop only knew this one exit to get out in the event of a fire, terrible things occurred on these rear stairs. March 25, 1911 was a Saturday and a fine day according to all accounts. Most sweatshop workers in the city were released by lunchtime for their Saturday half-day off, including those who worked on the lower seven floors of the Ash Building. However, the owners of the Triangle Shirtwaist Company kept most of their employees hard at work until 5 p.m., most of the factory employees, nearly 500 women and 100 or so men, were at work that day. Most of the women were very young, ages 16 to 23, and very few of them spoke English. They were largely Italian, German, Russian, and Hungarian immigrants, and many of them were the primary wage earners for their families. The men employed there worked mostly in the capacity of office workers and management. Around 4.40 p.m., just 10 minutes before the end of the workday, cries of fire rang out on the eighth floor. No one ever learned exactly how the fire started, but most speculated that it was caused by a carelessly discarded cigarette or match. Within a few minutes, flames were pouring from windows at the top three floors of the Ash Building. Four fire alarms were sounded immediately 
but the fire was already so intense that the first five women to jump to their deaths did so before even the first fire truck had arrived. Of the two elevators in the building, only one was in working order. A few minutes after the fire began, the only stairwell was full of flames and smoke, making it impossible to flee using that route. Thomas Gregory, an elevator operator from another building who was on his way home that day, ran into the building and made three more trips with the elevator before it broke down. He described leaving masses of terrified, panic-stricken people trying to fight their way onto the elevator, but was only able to take 15 or so people on each trip. Even though the elevator was no longer operating, the shaft doors were forced open and several people attempted to escape by sliding down the elevator cables. At least two people were successful in their attempt. A young woman, later pulled from the shaft alive, said she passed out on her way down the cables and had no memory of what happened next, but she believed that she survived because she landed on several of the dead bodies of her fellow workers, which cushioned her fall. Another man reported using the same cables to flee. Unfortunately, as he slid down, the body of a young woman falling from above knocked him from the cables and he fell the final few floors. After the fire, 25 bodies were pulled from the bottom of the elevator shaft, many of whom had simply jumped to their deaths to escape the flames. Both Harris and Blank, the building's owners, were in the building when the fire started, along with Blank's children and their nanny. All escaped by making their way to the roof, a means of escape that was not known to most of the factory workers. The doors to the roof were kept locked on all but the top floor. About 200 workers did eventually make their way to the roof, most of them from the 10th floor. The New York University Law School building was located just across a small courtyard but was one story higher. As the fire raged, several law students led by Charles Kramer and Elias Cantor rushed to the aid of the victims. They tied two short ladders together so that the victims could climb to the roof of their building. Kramer climbed down onto the lower roof to help them up the ladder, and in this way they were able to save 150 men, women, and girls. Kramer then made his way down into the 10th floor to look for more survivors. He saw only one young girl, her hair ablaze. She ran toward him, screaming, and then fainted in his arms. He put out her burning hair, then carried her to safety, believing there to be no one else surviving left behind on that floor. Meanwhile, at the other end of the roof, about 50 people had gathered and were fighting to scale the five feet to the roof of the adjoining building. Several of the law students reported seeing men kicking and biting the women and girls, knocking them out of the way as they escaped to safety. After the fire department arrived, many attempts were made to save trapped or falling victims. Unfortunately, their ladders only reached a little above the sixth floor. Several people tried to jump to the ladders but none were able to catch hold and all fell to their deaths. Safety nets were also employed but to little or no avail. The great height was just too much and many of the nets split or were shredded as bodies fell through them, crashing to the pavement. In one case, a young girl was caught in a net but three others who jumped just after landed on her and all four toppled onto the ground dead. A few bystanders tried to stretch blankets or tarps, but the results were nearly all the same. 
the number of people saved in this manner could be counted on one hand. One woman fell with such force that she ripped through a safety net and crashed through the thick glass vault in the sidewalk, finally coming to rest in the basement of the building. Several rescue workers were injured when falling bodies struck them. People were falling faster than the firefighters could get into position to try and catch them. The firefighters' rescue efforts were further hindered by the growing number of corpses strewn about the sidewalks, making it difficult for them to move the safety nets. The bodies were left lying where they fell until later that evening, as the firefighters were busy fighting the fire. It was believed none of those who had fallen could still be alive. A few hours later, however, a young woman was pulled from a pile of bodies, still breathing. A great cheer arose as she was loaded into an ambulance. Sadly, though, she died a few minutes later. As the upper floors of the building burned, a crowd of thousands gathering in the streets below bore witness to the carnage that was unfolding before them. They screamed in horror as they watched helpless. Many eyewitness reports of the tragic deaths of the people who fell to their deaths from the windows of the Washington Place and Green Street sides soon followed. Some jumped, some were thrown or pushed, and others were forced out by the panic-stricken crowds shoving their way toward the windows. A majority of those who fell did so with burning clothing and hair. Some continued to burn as they lay on the sidewalk until they were extinguished by the water dripping down from the fire hoses, their blackened bodies left lying there until late in the evening. Five young women on the Green Street side of the building climbed out onto the windowsill, wrapped their arms around each other, and jumped together. They crashed through the sidewalk cover into the basement, their clothes and hair burning as they fell. Another girl leaped very far out, but her dress got tangled up in some wires and she was left suspended, high above, as the crowd watched, unable to help. Eventually, her dress burned through and she fell to her death. A man on the same side was seen from an adjacent building, running from window to window, picking up women and throwing them out the windows. Eventually, when no other women were left, he himself climbed onto the ledge, paused a moment, then jumped. It was never known if he believed that there would be nets to catch them or if he was trying to shorten their suffering. A young girl of about 13 was seen hanging by her fingertips from a ninth-floor windowsill for a few minutes. Then the fire reached her fingers and she fell into a waiting net, only to be crushed by two other women who fell immediately after her, adding all three to the death list. Some of the girls who jumped from the Washington Place side crashed through the vault light in the sidewalk. As women continued to fall or jump from the same window, their bodies eventually created a hole nearly five feet in diameter. Later in the evening, firefighters pulled several partially nude and burned bodies from this hole. Another pair of girls climbed out of a window on the ninth floor, overlooking Green Street. The older of the two seemed calm and composed as she tried to subdue the younger girl as she shrieked and twisted with fright. As the crowd called to them not to jump, the older girl wrapped her arms around her and pulled her back toward the building. The younger girl, in her panic, twisted free, took a few steps away, and then she jumped. The older girl remained standing on the ledge until the flames came so close that her hair was scorched. She looked skyward, placed her arms to her sides, 
and jumped straight down feet first. Her name was Bertha Weintraut, and she was the girl who was later found alive, if only for a few minutes, buried amid a pile of corpses on the sidewalk. Six girls, after getting to a window on the ninth floor, made their way out onto an eight-inch wide ledge that ran the length of the building. Slowly, they edged their way along this ledge, more than 100 feet above the ground, toward a swinging electric cable. When all had arrived, they grabbed the cable simultaneously in an attempt to swing to the safety of the adjacent building. The cable snapped as they swung out and all six perished below. A few windows down on the same floor, a man and a woman appeared on the sill. The man kissed, then hugged the woman, threw her to the street, and jumped himself. Both were killed. Just around the corner, from another window, a young girl, a man and a woman, and two other women with their arms wrapped around each other leaped to the ground together. The young girl was found alive after her fall and was rushed to the hospital where she died upon arrival. A small group of men tried to make a human bridge between the burning building and the window of another building. They were successful in saving a number of women, but eventually the weight of the women became too great and the bridge broke, the center man tumbling to the ground with a broken back. The fire was extinguished within an hour, and by 7 p.m., less than two hours after it started, firefighters were able to force their way up the stairs and into the burned floors. They reported that 50 roasted bodies were found on the ninth floor alone. The charred bodies of 19 victims were found piled against locked doors, and 25 more were found huddled together in a cloakroom. Each body, as it was found, was carefully lifted from the burned surroundings, wrapped in cloth, and hoisted to the ground using a pulley system. They were then taken to one of a hundred wooden coffins lining the street. The bodies were then moved to the morgue at Bellevue Hospital or the Charities Pier Morgue. One unnamed reporter wrote in the New York Times that the remains of the dead, it is hardly possible to call them bodies because that would suggest something human, and there was nothing human about most of these, were being taken in a steady stream to the morgue for identification. Fire Chief Edward F. Croker, one of the first men to re-enter the building following the fire, left the building in obvious distress, stating that in all his years he had never seen anything like what he had seen on those upper floors. The police estimated that as many as 200,000 people, devastated family and friends as well as the morbidly curious public, entered the makeshift morgue at the pier and filed past the over 100 wooden coffins containing bodies that had been recovered. They walked past the bodies that were at least partially recognizable in the hope of finding a lost loved one. Tens of thousands were turned away by the police in an attempt to keep more of the general public away. Over 40 human forms too badly burned to be recognizable were covered with a white canvas tarp with the hopes that they might be identified through trinkets, jewelry, or articles of clothing. Stories of unbelievable anguish were published in newspapers across the country. A young girl was identified by a family heirloom signet ring found clinging to the charred flesh of a badly burned body. A young woman screamed as she collapsed after identifying her fiancé by his ring, having become engaged only the night before. 
She asked if a watch had been found with the body. When she was given the watch, she opened it and gazed upon her own portrait. A man having waited in line for over five hours identified his daughters by their clothing. After collapsing with grief, he attempted to kill himself on the spot. He was restrained by police until he calmed down enough to continue looking for his wife, also lost in the fire. A man with a fresh burn on his cheek identified his brother. He told the police that he and his brother had fought the fire, standing side by side with buckets of water. A man who had barely escaped with his own life identified his fiancée by her engagement ring. In her hand, she still clutched her handbag. Her weekly wages of $3 remained inside, intact. A sobbing brother stumbled away from the mangled bodies of his two sisters, left propped up in their coffins to search for their mother. The fire took his entire family. As a growing number of people became hysterical or suicidal, a makeshift hospital was set up at the pier to deal with this unexpected problem. Doctors and nurses from Bellevue Hospital worked for days trying to help keep those grieving family members from being added to the list of lives stolen by the fire. 31 victims remained unidentified after the last of the survivors claimed their family and friends. The Hebrew Free Burial Association paid for the burial of 23 of these victims in a special section of Mount Richmond Cemetery. The remaining eight bodies were interred in the Cemetery of the Evergreens in Brooklyn. As the blaze began, the only safety measures within the Ash Building available to those still inside were 27 buckets of water and one fire escape that collapsed almost immediately. Most of the exits were locked, and those that weren't opened inward so that they remained closed under the crush of people pushing toward the doors. It was not the 95 charred bodies found inside the building that so outraged the public, but rather the heaps of bodies along the sidewalk and rows of mostly young girls lying dead in the street. By the end, 53 people had jumped, fallen, or were pushed from the upper floors, and thousands of people were there to witness each one of them fall and strike the pavement. The average age of those killed in the fire was 19. The public outrage was carried like a wave across the country as reports and pictures of the tragedy appeared in newspapers everywhere. The resulting public pressure proved to be too much to overcome, and dramatic changes were in store for the existing fire codes and their enforcement in the workplace. The New York State Legislature formed the Factory Commission in 1911, which developed many requirements linked directly back to the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, such as all exit doors must be left unlocked during operating hours, and sprinklers were to be installed if a factory employed more than 25 people. The memories of the young women who perished in that terrible fire resulted in a major change in the way many people thought about protecting workers. Prior to the fire, the government left businesses alone regarding the safety of their workers. Afterwards, the government had little choice but to begin instituting sweeping safety laws that changed history for American workers. In the end, no one was held accountable for the Triangle deaths. In December of 1911, Max Blank and Isaac Harris, the Ash Building owners and Triangle Shirtwaist Company owners, were charged and tried for manslaughter. Despite a mob of people outside the courthouse chanting, murderers, murderers, the two were acquitted of all charges by the jury after only two hours of deliberation. 
23 individual civil suits for damages against the company were settled for an average of $75 per life lost. Blank and Isaac completed their association with the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory by filling an insurance claim in excess of their losses, garnering them a profit from the fire of more than $60,000, a hefty sum in 1911. Blank continued on in the clothing manufacturing business. He opened another factory on Fifth Avenue. In 1913, just two years after the Triangle Fire, he was arrested for locking the exit door in his factory during working hours. He was fined $20. The Ash Building still stands at the corner of Washington Place and Green Street, but its name has been changed to the Brown Building. No longer are the floors of that building home to sweatshops employing poor and desperate immigrant women and girls overworked and underpaid. Today, the Brown Building is full of young university science students, as it has become a part of the New York University as a science lab, the same university that was located next door and provided a means of escape to nearly 150 people fleeing the fire with the aid of many of the students. On the corner of the building, a plaque has been placed commemorating the tragic events that took place on that site on March 25, 1911, and the lives lost that day. The Triangle Shirtwaist Fire continues as a turning point in United States history. There are other reminders of the fire for those who pay close enough attention. Even though the use of the building and the occupants have changed dramatically, bits and pieces of its history still linger many of these believed to be supernatural. It's not uncommon for the smell of smoke to waft through the halls of the upper floors, and more than once, fire warnings have passed through the building. On occasion, people have reported a different kind of odor accompanying the smell of smoke. This odor can only be described as that of burning flesh. Then the odors simply disappear as quickly as they began. Often doors that are supposed to be locked are found unlocked, sometimes within minutes of being locked. Could it be that the spirit of someone lost in the fire is trying to keep the current occupants from meeting the same tragic fate by being trapped behind a locked door in an emergency? A few people over the years have described a most peculiar experience. While sitting at a desk or workstation, they've seen, out of the corner of their eye, something large flutter downward past their window. Upon going to the window to look down and see what it was, there is nothing there. The most striking ghostly experience was related by Susan, not her real name, a secretary who worked in the building for many years. She explained that she had been working later than usual one evening, and by the time she left to go home, most of the other employees and students had already left. As she walked out of the building, she noticed a young woman walk past her with a slight stagger and a dazed look on her face. She was very dirty, and her hair and clothes appeared to be singed or burned. Susan called to her to see if she needed help, but the young woman didn't respond. She just kept walking and turned the corner. Susan, thinking that the woman might be injured or in trouble, ran after her, but upon turning the corner she was met by an empty sidewalk. The young woman had simply vanished. We will never know for sure if these occurrences are directly related to the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. However, it does appear that the most important thing is that we never forget what happened there, 
nor the lessons learned. We may even get a little reminder now and then, just to make sure. You shut yourself in, the lights are out, and you're listening to weird darkness. But suddenly, you get that feeling you're not alone. You don't know what might be under the bed, or in the closet, or in the attic, or in the room with you. You don't dare try to sleep now, you're too scared to. If you doze off, you might be vulnerable to the creatures who haunt your dreams. That's just one more reason to have weird dark roast coffee in the cupboard, because you just never know when you might need it. Weird dark roast coffee contains deep notes of cocoa, caramel, and a touch of sinister sweetness. Each bag is fresh roasted to order by Evansville Coffee, and delivery is free for your first order. Just use the promo code WEIRD. You can find a link to it at WeirdDarkness.com. Grab a bag before something else grabs you from the dark. I've been working at a local Good Sense Subs in my town for almost two years now. This specific store has been experiencing strange phenomenon since before I started my work. Co-workers have claimed to be touched, heard their names called, and even seen strange apparitions. I wasn't a believer until I kept hearing my name being called, though the most horrifying thing happened to me on Easter about a year ago. I was told by management to come in and lay out the bread that would be baked the next day, and reluctantly agreed. No one wanted to come into the store alone. At about 7 o'clock that Easter night, I entered the store. It wasn't so bad, kind of relaxing, or so I thought. I was able to lay out the first tray of bread when I noticed it. As I was closing the freezer door, I saw what looked to be a face peering at me from around the corner in the store office. I jumped, not expecting to see a form, and it disappeared. Frightened slightly, I continued to lay out bread. I then heard an odd scraping noise. Immediately, I armed myself with the closest bread knife I could. Studying the area, I saw the face again. This prompted a full search of the store for intruders, but I found nothing. This is the single most frightening incident I have ever experienced, and I refused for months to be alone in the store at all. I've had several unusual experiences throughout my life. I like to say unusual instead of paranormal because of the skeptic in me. However, the most recent one occurred two years ago. At this time, my then-fiancé, now-husband, and I had moved in with my in-laws in order to save for our wedding and for college. I had two experiences at this house. My first experience occurred when I was home by myself. I'd just gotten out of the shower and across our narrow hallway to our bedroom. I dropped the towel to get dressed. I then heard a door handle jiggle somewhere inside the house. I instinctively picked up the towel to save everyone any embarrassment. I called out, hello, to see who had come home, but no one ever answered. I then walked out of the bedroom and searched the house, looking out into the driveway. 
but no one had come home. The second experience occurred when I was home with my in-laws. My husband was at band practice. We were in the living room watching TV. They have a large sectional couch. The shorter end of the eye shape faces directly into the hallway. Whoever sits in this area can turn their head and stare directly into the long hallway. Anyway, I was sitting in this spot when I turned my head to look for our dogs. When I turn my head, I see what I can best describe as a shadow cross from my bedroom to another room that's located directly across the hallway from my bedroom. It wasn't exactly a shadow, but a figure that had a few features of a person. It's difficult to describe because it looked soft and blurry like it was out of focus. I wondered for a second what my husband was doing before I remembered that he was at a practice across town. I turned to my in-laws and said, I think I just saw something cross from one room to the other. My father-in-law simply stated, Oh, yeah, that happens sometimes. I told them I could have done with a warning. When you think of a mother, you think of someone who loves you unconditionally, a person to whom you've given your absolute trust. But what happens when that trust is violated again and again in the most grievous of ways? And what if the woman who tucks you in at night is a mother, a murderer, and a monster? Such was the case for the six children of Teresa Knorr life in the Knorr house had never been stable. A raging alcoholic, a negligent wife, and an abusive mother, Teresa Knorr had burned her way through four marriages by the time she was 30 years old. But it was her last divorce from Chet Harris, finalized the same year they wed, that sent her past the brink of madness. Suddenly, Teresa's drinking increased. Her neurosis worsened. Her violent behaviors escalated. Envious of her two eldest daughters, Teresa directed the brunt of her abuse at Sheila and Susan. Both girls met gruesome ends at their mother's hands. In 1984, Teresa burned Susan alive with the help of her teenage sons, Robert and William. Several unsuccessful murder attempts preceded the incident – a shot in the back, a stabbing, and a crude operation with an exacto knife. Teresa's motivation? she believed Susan had used magic to make her gain weight. Sheila was killed only a year later, after being locked in a closet without food or water for three days. Again, Teresa made wild claims to justify her actions. And again, Robert and William served as her brainwashed accomplices. After years of silence, Terry, the youngest of the Knorr children, courageously brought her story to America's Most Wanted in 1993. An investigation was launched soon thereafter, in which her mother received two consecutive life sentences. At last, Teresa Knorr was brought to justice, but the scars she'd left behind would never fade. Back at the house on Bellingham Way, Teresa grew more reclusive, more unpredictable, and more violent, 
but nobody outside of her immediate family knew anything about it. Though she had always been hard on her children, it was her last husband who finally turned her into a monster. She really went over the edge with Chet Harris, said Terry. After Harris, she dated for a little while, but then she got to the point where she wouldn't date or remarry or nothing. Terry's older brothers, William and Robert, agreed, recalling that their mother's gradual transformation from angry disciplinarian to raging eccentric took place in the late 1970s. Sometime around when I turned 10 or 11 or so, she started becoming abusive, real short-tempered, William recalled. She stopped going out, seeing friends at all on any level. She got rid of the telephone because she didn't want any people calling. We weren't allowed to have anybody inside the house. When I was growing up, I hated the Brady Bunch because I knew that nobody lived like that, said Robert. I knew that because I knew what my family life was like. Nothing could be more different from the truth than that TV show. I grew up in an insane asylum, basically. But what's worse is we didn't know it was an insane asylum," he continued. I never really admitted or even knew that I was being abused or that my family was being abused because I thought it was normal. And yet, as far as the neighbors knew, the Knorr family was no different from any other. Not that I want to say that they were private, but they stayed to themselves, said Janet Garrett, who lived next door. It was difficult to strike up a conversation with the mother she just didn't want to, it seemed like. You try a few times, and after two or three times, she just say, okay, you just give up. Teresa's changing behavior even went undetected by the neighborhood kids, who generally had a closer view of their friends' private lives than their parents. Not having a father figure around, that was the only thing about their family that seemed different, said Janet's son, Chris Garrett. He was the same age as Terry Knorr, and went to her house to play from time to time. Once he went to her birthday party, a party at which he noticed that he was the only non-family member. Terry's mom wasn't the silent type, he recalled. In fact, she was real talkative, kept to herself but talkative when you talked to her. Even so, I don't remember her ever saying anything that you could call off the wall. But Terry's mom was definitely different from the other moms in the neighborhood. I'll say this about her, Garrett added. Terry's mom definitely had control of the kids. I didn't see a lot of backtalk or argument coming out of any of them. If they were told to be in by a certain time, they were in. If they were told to do something, they did it. They never asked questions. They never made a point to second-guess authority. When my mother got drunk, she used to lick the ends of steak knives, Terry recalled. Serrated-edged knives, and she threw them at us to see if her aim was good. Knives weren't Teresa's only deadly playthings when she'd had a little too much to drink. Terry still blanches, remembering the chill in her mother's voice one evening when she went in to say goodnight. Eyes half-closed, the mother sat in a deep chair in the living room and motioned for Terry to approach. In her drunken stupor, Teresa howled at her shivering but stoic young daughter, boasting of that defining moment nearly 15 years earlier when she pointed a gun at Clifford Sanders and pulled the trigger. She owned two guns, a Derringer and a revolver, Terry recalled. At one point, she took out the bone-handled old cowboy gun. It looked like a toy, but it was a real six-shooter, a 22 pistol. Aiming the pistol at her daughter, Teresa told Terry, I shot once and I can do it again. 
Terry froze, standing terrified before her. And she told me to come to her, and I did, Terry said with a shudder, remembering. And she put the gun to my head, so hard that the next morning I woke up and still had a knot from where the barrel had sunk into my temple. Teresa's children may have accepted this dictatorial isolation, but they didn't understand it. They complained about not being able to have friends over, but if they whined too much about it, they were slapped into silence. They did not see the gradual evaporation of their contact with the outside world as the logical result of shutting themselves inside the house. Instead, Teresa's children saw the neighbors distancing from their mother and themselves as indifference and an unwillingness to get involved. Our neighbors backed off, said Terry. They knew better than to mess with our family. Everybody shuts their eyes. Nobody wants to get involved. The Nor children's blind obedience to their mother stemmed from a constant state of terror that remained invisible to the Garretts and everyone else who lived along Bellingham Way. Even in the early stages, the terror was so bizarre and their mother so skilled at keeping it in the family, it would have taken more than simple curiosity on the part of the neighbors to uncover what was going on. Had the Garretts or any of the other neighbors known about it, Terry wonders even today if they would have done anything. There are very few among those with a love for the supernatural who don't also have a passion for Edgar Allan Poe. Poe wasn't simply a melancholy author who wrote about premature burials, sinister black cats, and talking ravens. He was much more. If you've ever read a modern mystery or horror novel, you can thank Poe. Poe invented the modern mystery story, mostly invented science fiction, and was the first writer to take the horror stories of the Gothic era and set them in modern times, starting a trend that continues today. With a lifelong interest in Poe, Troy Taylor decided to take his own look at the mysterious and macabre writer, his tragic life, unexplained death, and lingering hauntings. He invites listeners along to delve into the strange and bizarre world of Edgar Allan Poe, from his early life to his tragic marriage, his insane grief, his dramatically failed career, his links to an unsolved murder and the mystery of what happened to the writer in the five days before his unexplained death. Even more than a century and a half later, no one knows what happened to Poe before he was found delirious on the streets of Baltimore, Maryland, or what killed him. Why did he disappear and then show up in an incoherent state, wearing another man's clothes? Where did he go when he vanished, and who was the mysterious Reynolds that Poe whispered about in his dying breath? And perhaps strangest of all, does he haunt the mysterious graveyard where his body is buried? Nevermore, The Haunted Life and Mysterious Death of Edgar Allan Poe, written by Troy Taylor, narrated by Darren Marlar. Find a link to the book on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. Let me start by saying that Peter Terry was addicted to heroin. We were friends in college and continued to be after I graduated. Notice that I said I. He dropped out after two years of barely cutting it. 
After I moved out of the dorms and into a small apartment, I didn't see Peter as much. We would talk online every now and then. AIM was king in pre-Facebook years. There was a period where he wasn't online for about five weeks straight. I wasn't worried. He was a pretty notorious flake and drug addict, so I assumed he just stopped caring. Then one night I saw him log on. Before I could initiate a conversation, he sent me a message. David, man, we need to talk. That was when he told me about the No End House. It got that name because no one had ever reached the final exit. The rules were pretty simple and cliché. Reach the final room of the building and you win $500. There were nine rooms in all. The house was located outside the city, roughly four miles from my house. Apparently, Peter had tried and failed. He was a heroin and who knows what the heck addict, so I figured the drugs got the best of him and he wigged out at a paper ghost or something. He told me it would be too much for anyone, that it was unnatural. I didn't believe him. I told him I'd check it out the next night and no matter how hard he tried to convince me otherwise, $500 sounded too good to be true. I had to go. I set out the following night. When I arrived, I immediately noticed something strange about the building. You ever seen or read something that shouldn't be scary, but for some reason a chill crawls up your spine? I walked toward the building and the feeling of uneasiness only intensified as I opened the front door. My heart slowed and I let a relieved sigh leave me as I entered. The room looked like a normal hotel lobby, decorated for Halloween. A sign was posted in place of a worker. It read, Room 1, This Way. Eight more follow. Reach the end and you win. I chuckled and made my way to the first door. The first area was almost laughable. The decor resembled the Halloween aisle of Kmart, complete with sheet ghosts and animatronic zombies that gave a static growl when you passed by. At the far end was an exit. It was the only door besides the one I entered through. I brushed through the fake spider webs and headed for the second room. I was greeted by fog as I opened the door to room two. The room definitely upped the ante in terms of technology. Not only was there a fog machine, but a bat hung from the ceiling and flew in a circle. Scary. They seemed to have a Halloween soundtrack that one would find in a 99-cent store on loop somewhere in the room. I didn't see a stereo, but I guess they must have used a PA system. I stepped over a few toy rats that wheeled around and walked with a puffed chest across the next area. I reached for the doorknob, and my heart sank to my knees. I did not want to open that door. A feeling of dread hit me so hard I could barely even think. Logic overtook me after a few terrified moments, and I shook it off and entered the next room. Room 3 is when things began to change. On the surface, it looked like a normal room. There was a chair in the middle of the wood-paneled floor. A single lamp in the corner did a poor job of lighting the area, casting a few shadows across the floors and walls. That was the problem. Shadows. Plural. With the exception of the chairs, there were others. I'd barely walked in the door and I was already terrified. It was at that moment that I knew something wasn't right. I didn't even think as I automatically tried to open the door I came through. It was locked from the other side. 
That set me off. Was something locking the doors as I progressed? There was no way. I would have heard them. Was it a mechanical lock that set automatically? Maybe, but I was too scared to really think. I turned back to the room and the shadows were gone. The chair's shadow remained, but the others were gone. I slowly began to walk. I used to hallucinate when I was a kid, so I wrote off the shadows as a figment of my imagination. I began to feel better as I made it to the halfway point of the room. I looked down as I took my steps, and that's when I saw it. Or didn't see it. My shadow. It wasn't there. I didn't have time to scream. I ran as fast as I could to the other door and flung myself without thinking into the room beyond. The fourth room was possibly the most disturbing. As I closed the door, all light seemed to be sucked out and put back into the previous room. I stood there, surrounded by darkness, not able to move. I'm not afraid of the dark, and never have been, but I was absolutely terrified. All sight had left me. I held my hand in front of my face, and I didn't know what I was doing. I would never have been able to tell. Darkness doesn't describe it. I couldn't hear anything. It was dead silence. When you're in a soundproof room, you can still hear yourself breathing. You can hear yourself being alive. I couldn't. I began to stumble forward after a few moments, my rapidly beating heart the only thing I could feel. There was no door in sight. wasn't even sure there was one this time. The silence was then broken by a low hum. I felt something behind me. I spun around wildly but could barely even see my nose. I knew it was there, though. Regardless of how dark it was, I knew something was there. The hum grew louder, closer. It seemed to surround me, but I knew whatever was causing the noise was in front of me, inching closer. I took a step back. I had never felt that kind of fear. I can't really describe true fear. I wasn't even scared I was going to die. I, I was scared of what the alternative was. I was afraid of what this thing had in store for me. Then the lights flashed for a second, and I saw it. Nothing. I saw nothing. And I know I saw nothing there. The room was again plunged into darkness, and the hum became a wild screech. I screamed in protest. I couldn't hear this damn sound for another minute. I ran backwards, away from the noise, and fumbled for the door handle. I turned and fell into room five. Before I describe room five, you have to understand something. I am not a drug addict. I've had no history of drug abuse or any sort of psychosis short of the childhood hallucinations I mentioned earlier, and those were only when I was really tired or just waking up. I entered the no-end house with a clear head. After falling in from the previous room, my view of room 5 was from my back looking up at the ceiling. What I saw didn't scare me, it simply surprised me. Trees had grown into the room and towered above my head. The ceilings in this room were taller than the others, which made me think I was in the center of the house. I got up off the floor, dusted myself off, and took a look around. It was definitely the biggest room of them all. 
I couldn't even see the door from where I was. Various brush and trees must have blocked my line of sight with the exit. Up to this point, I figured the rooms were going to get scarier, but this was a paradise compared to the last room. I also assumed whatever was in room four stayed back there. I was incredibly wrong. As I made my way deeper into the room, I began to hear what one would hear if they were in a forest. Chirping bugs and the occasional flap of birds seemed to be my only company in this room. That was the thing that bothered me the most. I heard the bugs and other animals, but I didn't see any of them. I began to wonder how big this house was. From the outside, when I first walked up to it, it looked like a regular house. It was definitely on the bigger side, but this was almost a full forest in here. The canopy covered my view of the ceiling, but I assumed it was still there, however high it was. I couldn't see any walls either. The only way I knew I was still inside was that the floor matched the other rooms, the standard dark wood paneling. I kept walking, hoping that the next tree I passed would reveal the door. After a few moments of walking, I felt a mosquito fly onto my arm. I shook it off and kept going. A second later, I felt about ten more land on my skin at different places. I felt them crawl up and down my arms and legs, and a few made their way across my face. I flailed wildly to get them all off, but they just kept crawling. I looked down and let out a muffled scream, more of a whimper to be honest. I didn't see a single bug. Not one bug was on me, but I could feel them crawl. I heard them fly by my face and sting my skin, but I couldn't see a single one. I dropped to the ground and began to roll wildly. I was desperate. I hated bugs, especially ones I couldn't see or touch. But these bugs could touch me, and they were everywhere. I began to crawl. I had no idea where I was going. The entrance was nowhere in sight, and I still hadn't even seen the exit. So I just crawled my skin wriggling with the presence of those phantom bugs. After what seemed like hours, I found the door. I grabbed the nearest tree and propped myself up, mindlessly slapping my arms and legs to no avail. I tried to run, but I couldn't. My body was exhausted from crawling and dealing with whatever it was that was on me. I took a few shaky steps to the door, grabbing each tree on the way for support. It was only a few feet away when I heard it. The low hum from before. It was coming from the next room and it was deeper. I could almost feel it inside my body, like when you stand next to an amp at a concert. The feeling of the bugs on me lessened as the hum grew louder. As I placed my hand on the doorknob, the bugs were completely gone, but I couldn't bring myself to turn the knob. I knew that if I let go, the bugs would return and there was no way I would make it back to room four. I just stood there, my head pressed against the door, marked six, and my hand shakily grasping the knob. The hum was so loud I couldn't even hear myself pretend to think. There was nothing I could do but move on. Room six was next, and room six was hell. I closed the door behind me. My eyes held shut, my ears ringing. The hum was surrounding me. As the door clicked into place, the hum was gone. I opened my eyes in surprise, and the door I had shut was gone. It was just a wall now. 
I looked around in shock. The room was identical to room three, the same chair and lamp, but with the correct amount of shadows this time. The only real difference was that there was no exit door, and the one I came in through was gone. As I said before, I had no previous issues in terms of mental instability, but at that moment I fell into what I now know was insanity. I didn't scream, I didn't make a sound. At first I scratched, softly. The wall was tough, but I knew the door was there, somewhere, I just knew it was. I scratched at where the doorknob was. I clawed at the wall frantically with both hands, my nails being filed down to the skin against the wood. I fell silently to my knees, the only sound in the room, the incessant scratching against the wall. I knew it was there. The door was there. I knew it was just there. I knew if I could just get past this wall. Are you all right? I jumped off the ground and spun in one motion. I leaned against the wall behind me, and I saw what it was that spoke to me. To this day, I regret ever turning around. There was a little girl. She was wearing a soft, white dress that went down to her ankles. She had long blonde hair to the middle of her back, and white skin and blue eyes. She was the most frightening thing I had ever seen, and I know that nothing in my life will ever be as unnerving as what I saw in her. While looking at her, I saw something else. Where she stood, I saw what looked like a man's body, only larger than normal and covered in hair. He was naked from head to toe, but his head was not human, and his toes were hoofs. It wasn't the devil, but at that moment it might as well have been. The form had the head of a ram and the snout of a wolf. It was horrifying, and it was synonymous with the little girl in front of me. They were the same form. I can't really describe it, but I saw them at the same time. They shared the same spot in that room, but it was like looking at two separate dimensions. When I saw the girl, I saw the form, and when I saw the form, I saw the girl. I couldn't speak. I could barely even see. My mind was revolting against what it was attempting to process. I had been scared before in my life, and I'd never been more scared than when I was trapped in the fourth room, but that was before room six. I just stood there, staring at whatever it was that spoke to me. There was no exit. I was trapped here with it. And then it spoke again. David, you should have listened. When it spoke, I heard the words of the little girl, but the other form spoke through my mind in a voice I won't attempt to describe. There was no other sound. The voice just kept repeating that sentence over and over in my mind, and I agreed. I didn't know what to do. I was slipping into madness, yet couldn't take my eyes off what was in front of me. I dropped to the floor. I thought I'd passed out, but the room wouldn't let me. I just wanted it to end. I was on my side, my eyes wide open and the form staring down at me. Scurrying across the floor in front of me was one of the battery-powered rats from the second room. The house was toying with me, but for some reason seeing that rat pulled my mind back from whatever depths it was headed and I looked around the room. I was getting out of there. I was determined to get out of that house and live and never think about this place again. I knew this room was hell and I wasn't ready to take up a residency. At first it was just my eyes that moved. 
I searched the walls for any kind of opening. The room wasn't that big, so it didn't take long to soak up the entire layout. The demon still taunted me, the voice growing louder as the form stayed rooted where it stood. I placed my hand on the floor, lifted myself up to all fours, and turned to scan the wall behind me. Then I saw something I couldn't believe. The form was now right at my back, whispering into my mind how I shouldn't have come. I felt its breath on the back of my neck, but I refused to turn around. A large rectangle was scratched into the wood, with a small dent chipped away in the center of it. Right in front of my eyes, I saw the large seven I had mindlessly etched into the wall. I knew what it was. Room seven was just beyond that wall where room five was moments ago. I don't know how I had done it. Maybe it was just my state of mind at the time, but I had created the door. I knew I had. In my madness, I had scratched into the wall what I needed the most, an exit to the next room. Room seven was close. I knew the demon was right behind me, but for some reason it couldn't touch me. I closed my eyes and placed both hands on the large seven in front of me. I pushed. I pushed as hard as I could. The demon was now screaming in my ear. It told me I was never leaving. It told me that this was the end, but I wasn't going to die. I was going to live there in room six with it. I wasn't. I pushed and screamed at the top of my lungs. I knew I was going to push through the wall eventually. I clenched my eyes shut and screamed, and the demon was gone. I was left in silence. I turned around slowly and was greeted by the room as it was when I entered, just a chair and a lamp. I couldn't believe it, but I didn't have time to dwell. I turned back to the seven and jumped back slightly. What I saw was a door. It wasn't the one I had scratched in, but a regular door with a large seven on it. My whole body was shaking. It took me a while to turn the knob. I just stood there for a while, staring at the door. I couldn't stay in room six. I couldn't. But if this was only room six, I couldn't imagine what seven had in store for me. I must have stood there for an hour, just staring at the seven. Finally, with a deep breath, I twisted the knob and opened the door to room seven. I stumbled through the door, mentally exhausted and physically weak. The door behind me closed and I realized where I was. I was outside. Not outside like room five, but actually outside. My eyes stung. I wanted to cry. I fell to my knees and tried, but I couldn't. I was finally out of that hell. I didn't even care about the prize that was promised. I turned and saw that the door I just went through was the entrance. I walked to my car and drove home, thinking how nice a shower sounded. As I pulled up to my house, I felt uneasy. The joy of leaving No End House had faded, and dread was slowly building in my stomach. I shook it off as residual from the house and made my way to the front door. I entered and immediately went up to my room. There on my bed was my cat, Baskerville. He was the first living thing I had seen all night, and I reached to pet him. He hissed and swiped at my hand. I recoiled in shock as he had never acted like that. I thought, whatever, he's an old cat. 
I jumped in the shower and got ready for what I was expecting to be a sleepless night. After my shower, I went to the kitchen to make something to eat. I descended the stairs and turned into the family room. What I saw would be forever burned into my mind. My parents were lying on the ground naked and covered in blood. They were mutilated to near unidentifiable states. Their limbs were removed and placed next to their bodies, and their heads were placed on their chests, facing me. The most unsettling part was their expressions. They were smiling as though they were happy to see me. I vomited and sobbed there in the family room. I didn't know what had happened. They didn't even live with me at the time. I was a mess. Then I saw it. A door that was never there before. A door with a large eight scrawled on it in blood. I was still in the no-end house. I was standing in my family room, but I was in room seven. The faces of my parents smiled wider as I realized this. They weren't my parents. They couldn't be, but they looked exactly like them. The door, marked eight, was across the room behind the mutilated bodies in front of me. I knew I had to move on, but at that moment, I gave up. The smiling faces tore into my mind. They grounded me where I stood. I vomited again and nearly collapsed. Then the hum returned. It was louder than ever, and it filled the house and shook the walls. The hum compelled me to walk. I began to walk slowly, making my way closer to the door and the bodies. I could barely stand, let alone walk, and the closer I got to my parents, the closer I came to suicide. The walls were now shaking so hard it seemed as though they were going to crumble, but still the faces smiled at me. As I inched closer, their eyes followed me. I was now between the two bodies, a few feet away from the door. The dismembered hands clawed their way across the carpet towards me, all while the faces continued to stare. New terror washed over me and I walked faster. I didn't want to hear them speak. I didn't want the voices to match those of my parents. They began to open their mouths and the hands were inches from my feet. In a dash of desperation, I lunged toward the door, threw it open and slammed it behind me. Room 8. I was done. After what I had just experienced, I knew there wasn't anything this house could throw at me that I couldn't live through. There was nothing short of the fires of hell that I wasn't ready for. Unfortunately, I underestimated the abilities of No End House. Unfortunately, things got more disturbing, more terrifying, and more unspeakable in Room 8. I still have trouble believing what I saw in Room 8. Again, the room was a carbon copy of rooms 3 and 6, but sitting in the usual empty chair was a man. After a few seconds of disbelief, my mind finally accepted the fact that the man sitting in the chair was me. Not someone who looked like me, it was David Williams, me. I walked closer. I had to get a better look, even though I was sure of it. He looked at me and I noticed tears in his eyes. Please, please don't do it. Please don't hurt me. What? I asked. Who are you? I'm not going to hurt you. Yes, you are. He was sobbing now. You're going to hurt me and I don't want you to. He sat in the chair with his legs up and began rocking back and forth. It was actually pretty pathetic looking, 
especially since he was me, identical in every way. Listen, who are you? I was now only a few feet from my doppelganger. It was the weirdest experience yet, standing there talking to myself. I wasn't scared, but I would be soon. Why are you? You're going to hurt me! You're going to hurt me! If you want to leave, you're going to hurt me! Why are you saying this? Just calm down, all right? Let's try and figure this. And then I saw it. The David sitting down was wearing the same clothes as me, except for a small red patch on his shirt embroidered with the number nine. You're going to hurt me! You're going to hurt me! Don't please! You're going to hurt me! My eyes didn't leave that small number on his chest. I knew exactly what it was. The first few doors were plain and simple, but after a while they got a little more ambiguous. Seven was scratched into the wall, but by my own hands. Eight was marked in blood above the bodies of my parents, but nine? This number was on a person, a living person. Worse still, it was on a person that looked exactly like me. David? I had to ask. Yes, you're going to hurt me, you're going to hurt me. He continued to sob and rock. He answered to David. He was me, right down to the voice. But that number nine. I paced around for a few minutes while he sobbed in his chair. The room had no door, and similarly to room six, the door I came through was gone. For some reason, I assumed that scratching would get me nowhere this time. I studied the walls and floor around the chair, sticking my head underneath and seeing if anything was below. Unfortunately, there was. Below the chair was a knife. Attached was a tag that read, To David from Management. The feeling in my stomach as I read that tag was something sinister. I wanted to throw up, and the last thing I wanted to do was remove that knife from under the chair the other David was still sobbing uncontrollably. My mind was spinning into an attic of unanswerable questions. Who put this here? How did they get my name? Not to mention the fact that, as I knelt on the cold wood floor, I also sat in that chair, sobbing in protest of being hurt by myself. It was all too much to process. The house and the management had been playing with me this whole time. My thoughts, for some reason, turned to Peter and whether or not he got this far. If he did, if he met a Peter Terry sobbing in this very chair, rocking back and forth, I shook those thoughts out of my head. They didn't matter. I took the knife from under the chair, and immediately the other David went quiet. David, he said in my voice, what do you think you're going to do? I lifted myself from the ground and clenched the knife in my hand. I'm going to get out of here. David was still sitting in the chair, though he was very calm now. He looked up at me with a slight grin. I couldn't tell if he was going to laugh or strangle me. Slowly, he got up from the chair and stood, facing me. It was uncanny. His height and even the way he stood matched mine. I felt the rubber hilt of the knife in my hand and gripped it tighter. I don't know what I was planning on doing with it, but I had a feeling I was going to need it. Now, his voice was slightly deeper than my own, I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to hurt you, and I'm going to keep you here. I didn't respond. I just lunged and tackled him to the ground. I had mounted him and looked down, knife poised and ready. 
He looked up at me, terrified. It was like I was looking in a mirror. Then the hum returned, low and distant, though I still felt it deep in my body. David looked up at me as I looked down at myself. The hum was getting louder and I felt something inside me snap. With one motion, I slammed the knife into the patch on his chest and ripped down. Blackness fell on the room and I was falling. The darkness around me was like nothing I had experienced up to that point. Room 4 was dark, but it didn't come close to what was completely engulfing me now. I wasn't even sure if I was falling after a while. I felt weightless, covered in dark. Then a deep sadness came over me. I felt lost, depressed, and suicidal. The sight of my parents entered my mind. I knew it wasn't real, but I had seen it, and the mind has trouble differentiating between what is real and what is not. The sadness only deepened. I was in room nine for what seemed like days. The final room. That's exactly what it was. The end. No end house had an end, and I had reached it. At that moment, I gave up. I knew I would be in that in-between state forever, accompanied by nothing but darkness. Not even the hum was there to keep me sane. I had lost all senses. I couldn't feel myself. I couldn't hear anything. Sight was completely useless here. I searched for a taste in my mouth and found nothing. I felt disembodied and completely lost. I knew where I was. This was hell. Room 9 was hell. Then it happened. A light. One of those stereotypical lights at the end of the tunnel. I felt ground come up from below me, and I was standing. After a moment or two of gathering my thoughts and senses, I slowly walked toward that light. As I approached the light, it took form. It was a vertical slit down the side of an unmarked door. I slowly walked through the door and found myself back where I started, the lobby of No End House. It was exactly how I left it, still empty, still decorated with childish Halloween decorations. After everything that had happened that night, I was still wary of where I was. After a few moments of normalcy, I looked around the place trying to find anything different. On the desk was a plain white envelope with my name handwritten on it. Immensely curious, yet still cautious, I mustered up the courage to open the envelope. Inside was a letter, again handwritten. David Williams, congratulations. You've made it to the end of No End House. Please accept this prize as a token of great achievement. Yours forever, management. With the letter were five $100 bills. I couldn't stop laughing. I laughed for what seemed like hours. I laughed as I walked out to my car and laughed as I drove home. I laughed as I pulled into my driveway. I laughed as I opened my front door to my house and laughed as I saw the small number 10 etched into the wood. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please share it with someone you know who loves the paranormal or strange stories, true crime, monsters, or unsolved mysteries like you do. And please leave a rating and review of the show in the podcast app you listen from. 
Doing so helps the show to get noticed. You can also email me anytime with your questions or comments through the website at WeirdDarkness.com. That's also where you can find all of my social media, listen to free audiobooks that I've narrated, shop the Weird Darkness store, sign up for my email newsletter to win monthly prizes, find other podcasts that I host, and find the Hope in the Darkness page if you or someone you know is struggling with depression or dark thoughts. Plus, if you have a true paranormal or creepy tale to tell of your own, you can click on Tell Your Story or call the Dark Line toll-free at 1-877-277-5944. That's 1-877-277-5944. All stories in Weird Darkness are purported to be true unless stated otherwise, and you can find source links or links to the authors in the show notes. Massachusetts Butchery was written by Robert Wilhelm for Murder by Gaslight. Displaced Entities is by Stacey Kay for Your Ghost Stories. The Easter Sunday Massacre was written by Troy Taylor for American Hauntings, Inc. The Headless Ghost of St. Paul's Chapel is by Jessica Ferry for the lineup. Nursing Home Hauntings is by Morgan Job. Doppelganger Confusion was submitted anonymously. The Black-Eyed Phenomenon, Not Just Kids, was submitted by Roger M. Is Your House on the list? was submitted by Keith W. Another Black-Eyed Kids Encounter, Is This an Epidemic?, was submitted by Rick R. What Caused Our Creaking Catwalk?, was submitted by Amanda. In Reverse, The Doppelganger Student was submitted by Paul. My Haunted In-Laws Place is by Anna Olinick. We Deliver, We Cater, We Scare by Ian White. Death in the Triangle, The History, Hauntings, and Horrors of America's Worst Factory Fire is from Troy Taylor and Renee Cruz from the book And Hell Followed With It. The Mother Who Burned Her Daughter Alive is by Dennis McDougal from his book Mother's Day. And the fictional story The Creepypasta No End House was written by Brian Russell for Creepypasta Wiki. Again, you can find links to these stories in the show notes. Weird Darkness is a production and trademark of Marler House Productions. Copyright Weird Darkness. And now that we're coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. 1 John 1 verses 5 through 9. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light and there is no darkness in Him at all. So we are lying if we say that we have fellowship with God but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And a final thought. Fear is what stops you. Courage is what keeps you going. I'm Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. Want to receive the commercial-free version of Weird Darkness every day? For just $5 per month, you can become a patron at WeirdDarkness.com. As a patron, you get commercial-free episodes of Weird Darkness every day, bonus audio, and you also receive chapters of audiobooks as I narrate them, even before the authors and publishers hear them. But more than that, as a patron, you're also helping to reach people who are desperately hurting with depression and anxiety. You get the benefits of being a patron, and you also benefit others who are hurting at the same time. Become a patron at WeirdDarkness.com.